digging into a very, uh, any, any portion of Scripture is important as you walk into John chapter 3. Uh, you're walking into one of the, the main chapters that explains what it means to be redeemed, what it means to come and have the new birth, what it means to be saved. And so looking forward to walking through chapter 3 uh, as that becomes a very pivotal chapter in John. But everything in John is designed for us to see Jesus, to understand him, that we may uh, believe. And this story here, one of, the, uh, one of the stories that only John recounts, it's the uh, cleansing of the temple, the first one that Christ does. He does another one later uh, in his ministry, towards the end of his ministry. He'll clean the temple uh, again. But this is a bold statement that begins his ministry or his public ministry in the capital Uh, where all the tension is, where all the high priests are, where the Roman presence would be. Uh, This is his bold statement. And we're we're drawn to bold moves because they catch our eye. They compel us to pay attention. This is why kids hop on their bikes and do insurance cringing things while shouting, watch this to their friends. And we all know the bolder the move and its successful completion, the greater their fame, the greater the stories they get to tell. I like to give an illustration that has more eternal significance. Uh, Years ago, I was at a a conference, a Bible conference in uh, California, and a speaker uh, stood up. And this was a man who uh, was well-known in the United States and actually had let that fame as a speaker go, so to speak, uh, to go work in Africa. And he was sharing a story about missionaries (coughs) from another generation that had gone to the same country that he was working in. People who had left home and family and comfort long before there were uh, cell phones or phones, uh, long before there was a way to communicate back besides a letter that maybe would go back home, but you're going into the interior of Africa, and so you're going to a world unknown to you with a purpose of reaching the lost with the gospel. And what struck me, and, and was the point of his illustration, is what they packed to carry their belongings to Africa. And you would think they would put them in their suitcases or a crate or whatever it was, but these missionaries packed their belongings in their coffins because they were not planning on coming back. They were planning on giving their life on the field. And and so there was a coffin built at the beginning phases of life, and that was filled with what you would live with because they're going to die on the field. Bold. No one doubts when you load a coffin on a ship that you plan on giving your life to that ministry. They know their commitment and they know their goal. So we are now turning our attention back to John's narrative. And a gospel is always a narrative. It's always working us through the life of Christ. All four of them are. And John is working through, and as as we know, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write specific stories and record specific miracles that would highlight Christ, that would point to him. It's so you'll believe. This is the whole reason. John doesn't hide it ever. And so he picks up his narrative after Jesus and family and disciples have spent a little bit of time in Capernaum. And Capernaum is a city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And and Jesus will spend a lot of time there. It's where he bases that portion of his ministry from Capernaum. But it's time for them to journey uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover. And if you're a, a, a devout Jew, you're going to go to Jerusalem for Passover, and so they journey there. Uh, Most likely, this is taking place in AD 27. 
and that's just tracing back moons and history and, and life. Uh, there's a chance that it could have been A.D. 30, depending on how your calendar works and the counting of days uh, from Daniel. It's, it's way between the 27th or the 30th, but I go with A.D. 27. It is the 14th day of Nisan, which is the month when they would celebrate Passover. And for our calendar, that means it's either late March or early April. And you're going to come celebrate the Passover on the 14th of that month. And then on the 15th through the 22nd, they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so when they're journeying to Jerusalem, it's to partake of the Passover, uh, to sacrifice the lamb, and then they're going to participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And you can imagine you're traveling there for that first date, the Passover, and then the, the feast afterwards. And so he comes into the temple. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he quickly makes quite a stir. As one writer noted, this initial act of his ministry in the holy city proclaimed the nature of his mission. He would strike at all abuses of Judaism. And really, he's striking at all the abuses of real worship. And so the narrative in Jerusalem begins with a question of adoration. I'm going to reread verses 13 through 17. And the Jews pass over, and John does that to help people understand he's writing to a broader audience than just Jews. And so he's letting the whole audience know uh, this is the Jewish Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves <coughs> and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, when he made a whip, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And disciples remember that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, temple worship, which should have been peaceful and focused on God, has now been invaded by a commercial market. It's called the Bazaar of Annas, and he would have been high priest. And he had chosen at that time to bring these animals into the court of Gentiles because he knew that people would need to buy animals for sacrifice. If you're traveling from all over, all over Israel, you're not hauling your lamb with you. That's very inconvenient to haul the animal with you. And, and you come from all these different regions, and you have all different types of currency, and they needed a currency that had enough silver, pure silver in it, so they had a set coin that you could use. And actually, when you came for Passover, if you were a devout Jew, you would pay the temple tax. And so when you came, you'd pay a half coin. And so oftentimes you would go with somebody else and, and change over money to get the pure coin that they would accept. Well, this used to take place across from Jerusalem. In the Kidron Valley, they would have the animals there. And, and so this was a service that was valuable. But the high priest had decided he wanted to turn it into something he controlled, something he made money on. And so they have taken the area designed for outsider worship, designed for us as Gentiles, we would approach here, and they filled it to capacity with those making money and defrauding travelers. Now, Jesus is well aware of the corruption taking place, and it's the, the classic corruption. It's sad that it's the high priest, but even today, uh, I call it the tourist markup. 
since the beginning of time, and it's been exploited now by priests and merchants. But Christ is actually not specifically addressing that. He's actually focused on the fact that they should not have been in his father's house at all. That they have brought money-making into the temple where the focus should have only been worship. And we find something by what Christ does. We find that Jesus is passionate about true worship. One commentator noted, Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship. It was, it was a call to truly worship God from the heart without the clamor of distracting influences. <laughs> John records the initial phase of his ministry. The other gospels record when he finishes his ministry, how he's cleansing the temple, which tells you something about the high priest. They don't learn anything from this, that they are corrupt and that they are temporal, that they are trying to twist and turn and use the people. But from the onset of Christ's ministry, and this is what we see in John, is this idea that he cares about worship, that worship is valuable, that worship is important. And his passion for pure worship doesn't remain in theory. Often our passion for worship is in theory. We're passionate about worshiping until it becomes inconvenient, until something in life pops up, until something else better pops up on our horizon. We're passionate about worship in word, and Christ is definitely not passionate about worship in word only because he takes action. What does he do? He makes a whip. And he drives the livestock from the court of the Gentiles. And of course, there's people that say, oh, he's being mean to the animals. Go move sheep around and you'll know that you need a whip. He's not being abusive. He's moving livestock from a location on out. But I do want you to get a picture of the chaos. If they're bringing in enough animals to be sacrificed to sell to all the people traveling in, imagine how many animals are jammed into this courtyard everyone clamoring for their chance to sell the next suck or something down the line. My lamb is two shekels cheaper than his lamb by mine and all the things going on. And to stop someone from selling lambs, you get rid of the lambs, right? And so in the process of them moving out, the chaos is unfolding. He then takes the money changers. And remember, I mentioned that, that the temple tax had to be something that and a lot of people speculate on it had some kind of insignia on it, and that was bad. The one they bought had idol pagan gods on it as well. The reality was they had to have a coin with enough pure silver in it. And there was one that they could buy, and all their currency was not accepted. There was no standardized currency, and so they would make an exchange. Well, of course, it was a high rate of exchange. If you fly or travel abroad, if you want to lose some money, just make the exchange at the airport because they're going to get you with some kind of percentage that's there. And so he goes and imagine all the different currency that's there, and he doesn't just even yell at them to move. He flips their money over. There's no paper money back then. Have you ever seen coins just get thrown on the floor? Have you ever been uh, at a party with a pinata? I want you to think of that but think multiple pinatas and think somebody who feels they own all the candy in that pinata, and it's now scattered over the floor. They're moving now. There's nothing they can do. They've got to get their money, and then to top it all off, he flips the tables over. He then, I think, kindly tells the dove handlers, carry your cages out of here. Remove the animals from the yard. 
Yet, as Leon Morris notes, it's clear that it was not so much the physical force as the moral power he employed that emptied the courts. I want you to keep in mind, this is filled with merchants. The temple authorities are there. The Sanhedrin is wandering about. This is a big time. This is, and I don't want to be crass in this, this is the Super Bowl of Sundays for them. This is the Passover or Saturdays. So they're, they're, they're coming in, and this is, a, this is a big time. The merchants and leaders had the numbers to physically stop him. They had the authority from the Roman government even to arrest him. Now, if a fight had broken out, uh, the legions of Roman soldiers had direct access to the courtyard, so they would have come in. But, but what we find is something fascinating, because Jesus is passionate about worship, yet, yet leaders that typically will engage... They will stop. They will attack. And within three years, they're going to murder him. But here are these leaders. And as they're watching one guy clear out the whole courtyard, creating a certain amount of chaos and definitely offending merchants and the crowds around them, they're frozen. They're not doing anything. Why? Because Jesus is taking messianic action. Malachi 3, verses 1 and 3, speaks of when, what the Messiah will do when he comes at his second coming. And this act prefigures it. It says, And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord <coughs> an offering in righteousness. Now, as I mentioned before, years later, Jesus is going to again cleanse the temple and confront the corruption of worship, corruption that was planned and propagated by the religious leaders. Yet, as I mentioned, and we'll keep forefront, John's focus through this gospel is to present Jesus Christ as the Messiah and Savior. And so what does he do when Jesus walks for the first time in Jerusalem? He recounts what Jesus did because cleansing the temple was definitely a Messiah move. This is what the Messiah would have done. <clears throat> and it's Psalm 69.9 that the disciples will remember later on, thinking back on this, which says, For zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And Psalm 69 is not often known as a messianic psalm, but Paul quotes it even. And so they're going to come back to Scripture. Remember, wait a second. This is what the Messiah would do. This is what the Savior does. He would clean worship up because, of course, Jesus the Messiah had a zeal for real worship. He's not ever going to be fine with the pollution and degradation of worship, making it, as MacArthur writes, external, crass, and materialistic. Because, of course, God cares when our worship becomes polluted, when we approach it as something to get done on Sunday before we head back to our weekend plans, when we demean what takes place, demean the singing of praise, demean listening and being confronted by his word. Of course, God is not okay with that. And it's foolish of us to ever think he was. So as we see Christ in Jerusalem cleaning house at the temple, does he need a clean house in our hearts? Does our worship even get close to being what our Savior expressly desires? And that's, that's a reflective question 
And I know one that confronts us, that should confront us. I know when I was reading through it, it hit my heart how easy it is to belittle or begrudge worshiping him. How easy it is to look at the inconvenience of worship and that thought alone degradates or pollutes worship. Well, if it hits home to us, and it should, then it definitely hit home to the Jews, the authorities, the priests, the Sanhedrin. And so when they're first sitting there frozen, doing nothing, at some point the confrontation spurs them on, and so they come and confront Jesus with a question of authority. (coughs) Then answered the Jews, verse 18, and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And and read the arrogance for what it is. What are you going to prove? How are you going to prove that you have the right to do this? And remember what Paul writes about the Jews? They seek a sign. They constantly are seeking a sign. Because in Scripture, in the Old Testament, they told you there would be signs of the Messiah. What's fascinating is they're missing a sign right in front of them. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And actually, when he is before the Sanhedrin and the high priest to be crucified, false witnesses come and say he said he would destroy the temple and build it back in three days. And their witness doesn't agree, which makes sense because he said it three years before. But he never says, I'll destroy it. He says to them, you destroy it, and I'll rebuild it. Then said the Jews... Forty and six years was this temple in building. And by the way, it had been being built for 46 years. Uh, King Herod the Great, wanting to appease the Jews and also because he loved building things, has been working on the temple. And they keep working on it up to 63 AD, seven years before it gets taken to the ground by Emperor Titus. So they're working on this thing, and it's been 46 years, and you're going to build it back in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When wherefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So here's the picture. <coughs> Excuse me. Temple authorities, members of the establishment, all approach Jesus and they demand to see his credentials. They want a sign, just like the Jews are apt to seek, missing the obvious sign and eloquent witness of what he has just done. Yet, we get a lot from their demands. One, you notice something. First, they're blown away. They're shocked into immobility. They get over that because when you offend people, they get over the fact that they're shocked by what you're doing. And they confront him, and their confrontation shows that they're not even self-examining anything about what's taking place. They're not looking at this and saying, does he have a point here? Are we degradating? Are we polluting worship by having all these animals bleeding and crying and selling and money and all this stuff right in the court of Gentiles, right in the temple grounds, blowing worship up so all we hear is all the noise from the outside? Are we ruining worship? And then the fact that they ask for a sign tells you something else. They know he's not a lunatic. They know he's not crazy. Because you don't go to a crazy person and ask for a sign. You go to a crazy person and you surround them and you get them off the grounds, right? But if you're not crazy and they know he's not crazy, and so what they're looking at, they're seeing this, they're offended by what he's done because it's confronted who they are. It's confronted their worship. But when they walk up to him, they demand a sign because they assume he's a prophet. They assume he's heaven sent. But 
as I mentioned, the act itself was a sign. It's predicted in the Old Testament. And on top of that, <coughs> Jesus doesn't need a lower God to domesticate himself to the will of man and perform miracles on demand to maintain allegiance. And I know that's a lot of words to say this. God doesn't have to prove anything to you. And he doesn't have to prove anything to them at all. And actually, whenever Jesus is pushed to prove a miracle, you show us a sign. You do this. He never does. And there's a reason for that. God doesn't submit to humanity. We submit to him. So instead of their demanded sign, Jesus gives them a much bigger and complex thought. Destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. <clears throat> They're incredulous. You know, if you ever hear something that you think is ridiculous, that's where they're at. Rebuild what's been under construction for 46 years. It's not even finished. How can you rebuild what's not even done? And they completely missed the point. Why? They're zeroed in on the temporal and the material. And too many people in the church today follow that same mistake. But as John goes on to explain, Jesus was ultimately referring to his body. The connections are interesting, yet sadly missed <coughs> by those listening. The temple proper, the sanctuary itself, and, and John, not to get into grammar, but he uses a word for temple here on that encompasses everything. But when Jesus says rebuild the temple, he uses the word for naos, which is the temple proper, the, the, the holy of holies, the center portion, which has always been seen as the presence of God. That were, that's where God would dwell in Israel. That's the divine presence. Yet the actual presence of God, Jesus Christ, was standing there among men. And so as Carson notes, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. But as Leon Morris writes, there's an irony here in the fact that ultimately the Jews themselves were to be the means of bringing about the sign they asked Jesus to produce and which they did not recognize when it came. Let me explain a little bit what he's saying so we don't miss it. They said, give us a sign. He says, kill me, and in three days I'll rise again, is the, is the paraphrase of what he's pointing to. They miss it when he says it, and then they kill him and miss it when he does it. And so the same authorities that are here, remember, we kind of look over a whole chapter, a whole book of, of John, and we think, well, man, that's a lot of reading, especially if you want to do a chapter a, a day. But the fact is, when you go through it all, this is three years. The same people that ask for the sign actually see it happen, have their hand in killing him, and miss it all. So when they asked by what authority he did this, what authority he has to clean the temple, his answer was really simple. He himself is the authority. He doesn't get permission from them because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Why is he the authority? Because he's eternal life. He is what they're asking about. He is everything. He's the fulfillment of it all. And so you look at them and, and these supposed religious authorities have just missed the actual authority for life and eternity. The men in charge have missed God, who is uniquely in charge. They're so consumed with protecting their rights, their position and image, that they neglected to see who is actually on the throne. 
and it had them battling with the one true authority. I put as a question, are we guilty of doing the same? Questioning God's authority, questioning his right in worship and life. Sometimes we do a disservice, I know, as a church, as we petition people to worship, as we plead for worship. But the reality is, is God's not asking for worship. He demands worship, and rightfully so, because he is the one in charge. Well, as we noted uh, previously, this all is the temple time. This is all right around the Passover. The Passover is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a week-long celebration. And Jesus is in Jerusalem uh, for the duration of this whole time. And during that time, we see as we close out this chapter (coughs) that many are drawn to him. But we see a sad illustration at the end of John is that these people that are drawn to him, and actually in Scripture they use the word believe in him, that their allegiance or their belief is sadly superficial, raising a question of authenticity. Now, the main purpose of John, as we're going to see exposed here, and and I won't necessarily drag that out through all all the, the rest of the sermon, but I wanted to note it here. The reason why John is sharing this thing from the grand purpose of the Gospel of John is this. Jesus is God, and he knows everything that's in everyone's heart. That's the point of these verses. However, within these verses, we get a a confrontation on shallow belief. James will talk about this in in the book of James. You'll go through Scripture, and you'll see this. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ will teach on this. Uh, But 23 through 25 is Jesus in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it says that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, or in other words, during the week. So now we're at Nisan 15 through 22. We've, we're past the Passover. Many believed in his name. That sounds great, doesn't it? Many believed when they saw the miracles which he did. And this is fascinating. John doesn't record these miracles. He just tells you they're there. He tells you at the end of the gospel that I haven't recorded all the miracles. But what we find at the beginning of Christ's ministry, after he's flipped the tables, after he's run animals out, he's made quite the stir. Everyone knows who Jesus is because at the Passover, he just ran everyone out of the court of Gentiles. And when the, the authorities, the leaders, the high priests, when they questioned him, He told him that he could rebuild the temple in three days. And so he's well known. And now he's in a week of feasting, a time of of remembrance, but also a time of celebration. And he's doing miracles and people are believing. And that's the word in Greek. And then it says, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And by the way, Sadly, in English, they never translate it this way. Exact same word for belief. And so what it says there is this. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles he did, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew them. And he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, who knows what's in your heart? God does. No one else does. You might say, well, I've shared my heart with my spouse. Yeah, but they can't know your whole heart. Because God can. God knows our heart better than we know our heart. 
And so as we look at this, as he shows again that he's God, we come to a question of authenticity. See, people love to see neat things, supernatural things. And it brings a sense of excitement that appears to be true belief. It can even bring an affirmation of belief, an intellectual acknowledgement. But that's not true faith. James says that. You say that you believe. He says the devils believe and tremble. Intellectually, they know. Belief has never been intellectual. That's hopefully a confrontation that will hit us this morning. If you examine your heart, is it intellectual only? Because belief is more than intellect. It goes beyond that to the volition, the, the, the will, to the heart. It captures all of who you are. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 states this in clear warning about fake faith. I've preached on this before. I titled this message, The Scariest Verses in Scripture, because it says this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And you just put that in parentheses and go to our time frame. Haven't we been preaching? Don't we have a crowd? We have, we have gone out and preached and many have believed. Haven't we prophesied in thy name? Haven't we witnessed to our neighbors? Haven't we invited people to church? Haven't we done that? And in thy name, they say, have cast out devils. This is not, we claim to cast out devils, but we've cast out demons. In thy name, we've accomplished something. And in thy name, done many wonderful works, signs, miracles. And then I, or then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And right at the onset of Christ's ministry, before he's ever taught the Sermon on the Mount, John records that people believed in him, but he did not believe in them at all because he knows their heart. And Bruce notes, Jesus makes a clear distinction between those who were <coughs> superficially impressed because they saw the bare signs and those who penetrated beneath the surface and grasped the truth that was signified by the signs. When we look at the signs and say, wow, what a neat person. What can he do? And we're going to touch on that as we get to the bottom of this, how we approach God oftentimes for what he'll do for us, what he'll accomplish so that we'll believe in him. Do this, God, and I'll believe in you. Think about that in your mind, how often we challenge God that way. Solve my problems, God, and I'll believe you're all-powerful. Fix this for me, and you're all-powerful. And we recognize that we're the same as they are, because I don't want to pick on these people at all. I want to recognize that we are them. But as Homer Kent makes clear, Jesus knew that unless faith is made to rest in his person, it will not endure. And so right at the onset of his ministry years, we see that Jesus is the discerner of the heart. And by discerner, I mean Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows what's real in you and what is a fraud he knows what's real and what's a fraud, even if you don't know what is real and what's a fraud. Because that's the sad truth of Satan's deception. <coughs> His worst deception 
is not that he convinces someone to be an atheist, that someone lives a, a vile, wicked life. When I was in college, I remember going to my second semester English class, and I should have known that there'd be crazies in there because I did badness and fiction because it was the same teacher I had from the previous semester. And sure enough, there was the oddest looking individual I've seen in a while. And within class number three, he raised his hand and says, Satan worshipers aren't that bad. And I'm thinking, you're weird. I knew that by how he dressed with the spiky boots and the odd decor he had put out. But Satan worshiper, that's not the worst deception he does. At least that guy knew. We talked a lot through that class. That's not the worst deception. The worst deception is when Satan deceives you into thinking you know Christ as your Savior and you do not. When you think you're saved and you are not. You see, they supposedly believed in him. And that is not some special Greek word that doesn't mean belief. It literally is the same word for belief. They supposedly believed in him, but he did not believe in them. <clears throat> because he knew who they were. He knew that their belief was not in him. See, those people saw neat things. They enjoyed seeing Jesus wow the crowds. They loved him passing the test of Messiahship. They loved seeing Jesus do what they expected the Messiah to do. They loved when he passed the test. But it's Leon Morris who aptly states this, Jesus calls people to trust him for who he is, not because he passes the tests we set. Faith is not giving God things to do so that we will believe. <clears throat> That's not faith. Faith is believing in God because of who he is and that he alone is the resurrection and the life. You see, they saw all the miracles and they missed the temple cleansing. They missed when he stood up and said, kill me and in three days I'll rise again. They missed the fact that he's the resurrection and the life. And I put as a question here, <coughs> what do we think Jesus is seeing in our hearts right now? Don't be mistaken. He's not waiting to look at your heart. He sees every one of our hearts right now. <coughs> he always sees our heart. So I, 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 when I was framing the question, it's not what will Jesus see, it's what is Jesus seeing right now? Is he seeing real faith or just some interest in the divine, a curiosity about what he can do for you. Does God do for us? Well, God provides eternal life. Without it, we have nothing. <clears throat> but we don't approach God with what he can do for us or what he needs to prove to us. So kind of in closing, as we look at this, I want to remind ourselves of, of, the, of the book, and we're going to do this throughout the whole gospel. John is focused on revealing Jesus to the world. He's showing Christ. That's his whole, whole mission. That's what the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to do. And so he's focusing on who Jesus really is and that he alone is the answer for all eternity. And so in this initial visit to Jerusalem, when Jesus begins that earthly ministry in the first phase of that ministry, this is his first entry into the capital city, the, the critical city. We learn some things. We learn that Jesus is serious about worship. He is not okay with crass 
and material worship. He is not okay with distractions. He is not okay with the games we play and the distance we have created. And I want to explain what I mean by distance because too many of us show up to worship and we have put a box around what God can do and what God can say and how deep God can go in our lives. And so we've distanced ourselves. And what we need, we need to see from the temple cleansing, because it's very physical and it's very obvious to, to that generation and to us, but he's not okay with the distance they've created in worship, how they have made it more convenient and have they profited from it, because you can excuse it. I'm sure Annas is saying, well, every time we rip someone off, it's just more money for God, more money to be used there. And the idea is, is that he's serious about worship and he's not okay with the games we play with ourselves and the distance we create from him when we come to worship, where we stiff arm God, so to speak, in the sense of conviction and confrontation of our lives. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When asked by what authority he had cleansed the temple, it was because he would rise from the grave and conquer sin and death. Because he's God, that's why he can cleanse the temple. Because he's going to redeem us, that's why he can cleanse the temple. He was the answer and nothing else. And last, John wants us to understand in this context here that Jesus is the discerner of hearts. As God, he knows our hearts. He knows everyone's heart immediately and all the time. He uniquely knows exactly where our hearts are. But do we know and are we truly authentic believers? Because at the end of worship and authority is this short segment, 23 through 25, we're another proof that Jesus is God because he reads hearts. <clears throat> but again, John's not looking for the magic trick at the fair. He's trying to confront the audience, and the audience is us, about this idea of authentic faith. Because we just walk through a list of people who are not authentic, and it started at the top and worked all the way through the people and at the end, we're at the feasts, we're at the celebration, and people that are expressing faith, but there's no faith there. It's all a fraud. Do we know and are we truly authentic believers? Let's pray together. If I thank for the opportunity we have to come <coughs> and worship you and serve you, and Lord, we ask that you confront our hearts, how easy it is to begrudge worship to view this as something we do for you, as something we have to check off. I know in my own heart it's easy to belittle worship <clears throat> or to encase worship in its box. This is what I'm going to do for this time frame. But Lord, you have confronted us in the cleansing of the temple. You are not okay with the games we play. You are not okay with the fences we put up. You're not okay being boxed in to your time and your space. So, Lord, confront our hearts. Confront my heart as I approach worship through this year and through life that I will not let myself put walls up or put a distance or play a game, but instead fall on my knees and worship you, knowing that that is the greatest good, that we are called to worship <coughs> that you are the resurrection and the life, that you are the discerner of hearts. Lord, if anyone here doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I hope their heart will be broken this morning, that they'll submit to you and put their faith and trust in you, not in the things that you may do, but in who you are 
and the fact that you are our Redeemer, that you died on the cross and rose again so that you could buy us back for all eternity. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.